Uh, you may notice that our roundtable is short a member tonight. Ben is on vacation, but he should be tuning in from Colorado at this very moment with us. Um, so it'll just be the, uh, as Jay said, the ministers of the triangle tonight. <laughs> so we want to start off by looking at Paul's life before he became a Christian. You may also notice that we have set up a little differently. We decided that the uh, podiums in front of us made us feel a little closed off. So we decided to open up a little bit. And as one of the elders commented earlier, no, we are not getting more liberal. We just decided we wanted to have the, a more discussion-oriented uh, feel to, to this time of study. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. And let's turn over to uh, chapter... Uh, I often forgot what chapter I'm going to. One second. The book of Acts, turn over to... Um, actually, I want to go somewhere else first. I just realized that's why I couldn't think of the chapter. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 to start tonight. Philippians chapter 3. Again, our focus tonight is what we're going to call the persecution phase of Saul slash Paul's life. We're going to look at his life pre-conversion and examine what we can learn from his story before he became a Christian. So in Philippians chapter 3, you'll notice uh, he's addressing false teachers in particular at the start of this chapter, and he's warning the Christians in Philippi to watch out for the false teachers. And he then compared the false teachers to himself when it comes to um, uh, their spiritual resume to some degree. Now, when we talk about spiritual resume with Paul, we're talking about his resume pre-conversion, and it's a very, as he would say, fleshly resume. Now, look at what he says. He, he says that, in verse, starting in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes on to give his reasons, starting in verse 5 that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As Paul lists his spiritual resume here, the interesting thing is that all of this is really tied to his nationality. Paul is boasting in his identity as a Jew. He speaks about being of the people of Israel. That's his, that's his nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's his family, if you will. A Pharisee. That's his education. He speaks of his passion, his zeal as a persecutor of the church, and he speaks of his obedience as, uh, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. He says something similar in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. If you turn there, you'll notice that he is presenting his defense to the people of Jerusalem shortly after he was arrested. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, he lists some of these very same factors. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Turn over a few more chapters to Acts chapter 26 
And in verses 4 through 6 of Acts 26, Paul will once again give some resume material as he defends himself before Agrippa this time. So in Acts 20, chapter 26, beginning in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What's interesting about all of these passages is that as Paul communicates his defense of himself, as he presents his own resume pre-Christ, it's all about his flesh. It's all human-oriented. It's all about his education. It's all about his background. It's all about his heritage. Paul is proud of where he came from, proud of what he had accomplished, and so on. And it's no wonder that this individual who is so focused on himself and his accomplishments will have to be blinded in order to see himself more correctly later on. With that being said, I want to open this up to our other ministers. As you look at Paul's resume, as you look at Paul's uh, pre-conversion life when it comes to its background and education, what do you notice about him or what stands out to you about passages such as this and, and others that reference his origins? I think one of the first things I, I, I kind of, when I see you, when I, when I read Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 through 7, you have two different ways of how societies find honor in somebody. Um, some, some societies, some cultures find honor in the family you were born in, in the job that you have, in your title. So you, you are given honor, respect, and whatever, whatever it may be because of, your, because of your, just straight your position. Maybe you were born in that position. You, maybe it's because of a title you've gotten because of your family, whatever it may be. You're given honor because of your, well, your, the physical side of things like that. Yeah. And then, and that's how he sees in verse 4 through 5. When I look at verse 4 through 5, I see he, he finds honor. He found his glory at a certain point in his life from the physical point, from all the physical aspects that he didn't really have anything to do with. It wasn't his decision to be circumcised on that day. It wasn't his decision to be born in the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't his decision to even be an Israelite. So these are all things that were just handed to him. And, you know, and, and so that honor was given to him by his position, by his birth. And so that's one way to see, that's one way people gain honor or glory, whatever it may be, um, because of where they're born from. And then the flip side, other cultures, other societies, other people, we see honor based on accomplishments. There's one that you can see honor based on um, your prestige or where you're born into, but also what you've achieved. And that's, I feel like, more of an American way of looking at it. We honor, we look up to people who have made, are kind of self-made millionaires or self-made athletes, those that... Um, maybe came from nothing, but because of their accomplishments or their deeds or their mindset, their work ethic, they've risen, you know, they've kind of risen through the ranks and they proved themselves. And so that's what we get in verses 6 through 7, or verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is the law, found blameless. He says, I, from, my, from one side of honor, I was nearly perfect. No one could brag more than me based on my birth. On the accomplishment side of honor, no, no one could brag more than me based on, on my mindset and my work ethic. I, I was willing to do this persecution. I was willing to go um, you know, out of my way to Damascus, which we'll get to here in a little while. So the first thing I notice um, 
is where Paul at one point in his life found his righteousness from. Part of his righteousness was from his birth. And the other part of his righteousness was based on his accomplishments. And I think, man, how messed up is, you know, how messed up is Paul here? You know, what a mindset it is of that to have. And I think, uh, I, I, nothing's changed, right? I think if we split the room tonight, if I look at my life, we've all been guilty of finding our righteousness in, well, I was raised in the church. I was, my second week alive, I was brought to Bible school. Uh, you know, if, if, we, if we put ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, you know, I was born of a Christian family. I quoted the, the books of the New Testament when I was four <laughs> years old. I won gold in lines of leaders. You know, I went to this Christian school. And we can find our, 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 our accomplishment, or excuse me, my, our honor, maybe just based on our heritage, which once again, it's not a decision that I made, not a decision that I was responsible for or anything like that. And then I wonder how, on the other side of the coin, how many of us in this room tonight could find our honor, our righteousness, you could say, based on past accomplishments. Well, I've been on this trip. Uh, I went to that door-knocking campaign. I, I'm, I, I'm always here in this pew. My attendance is flawless, right? So this idea of self-made righteousness, um, we like it as Americans. I think we like that. Self-made yeah. millionaire, self-made athlete, self-made. One of my favorite shows, I know Ben, he's going to be big amening to this, uh, Shark Tank, right? You like to see <laughs> someone from a humble beginning have a, one great idea and then that's it, right? But that's just, that's not how it works when it comes to righteousness. That might be how it works in our culture, it might be how it works in our economics, it might be how it works in fame, celebrity, but it's not how it works to God. God doesn't care where the family I was born to. God doesn't care my, my heritage in, in the Christian walk necessarily. God also doesn't, uh, doesn't attribute my righteousness to me based on my past actions. The only action that attributed me righteousness was baptism. That bringing Christ into my life, that's where we find righteousness from. And I think that's what Paul is ultimately going to get to when it comes to these warnings against these false teachers. So that's my first comment on just this self-made righteousness that Paul is kind of, kind of touching on here in Philippians yeah. 3. Yeah, um, it was interesting that, um, you know, as Kyle mentioned, and, and J2, uh, the glory that Paul was looking at before the conversion was some human glory or earthly glory or some physical glory. But he misunderstood it, that it was the glory of God. I mean, one time he said that he was uh, pursuing the glory of God as, as, as his forefathers did. But the glory that he was uh, pursuing was not uh, the right glory, but, uh, and righteousness is the same. Uh, righteousness would be the glory for people. If we attain the righteousness of Christ, it would be gl glorious. So I think the Paul's conscience was right. He was pursuing the glory of God, but it was wrong way. Um, that was what happened to many Jew, Jews, uh, even in Paul's days, even in Jesus' days. And Paul later wrote about it in 2 Corinthians. And many Jews were still, uh, when Paul was writing 2 Corinthians, many, many Jews were still looking at the glory uh, that was not right glory. Uh, 
uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, from verse uh, 14, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So, uh, the glory they were, the Jews and the poor before conversion, was looking at was, uh, for example, by the law. I mean, the glory by the law and the righteousness by the law. It was not by faith, not by faith in Christ Jesus. So they, uh, they didn't appreciate what Christ did uh, for the sinners and for themselves. And, uh, and so uh, this uh, tells me a lot, I mean, so significant thing. If we focus on a wrong thing, on, on a wrong righteousness or wrong glory, then we, we can be blinded like Paul was. So I think uh, Paul later in Second Corinthians, uh, especially chapter 3, he could explain that very vividly that we can understand about it because he was there. Thank you, Mingu. Let's also consider, we've, we've already discussed about how Paul had a heritage, a background, an education prior to his conversion. Um, let's also consider what he did before his conversion. Let's, let's consider how he behaved and acted, not just what he was equipped with. So I want you to, to notice, uh, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. So when Stephen was stoned, Acts chapter 7 and verse 58 tells us that those who participated in his ex execution laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you skip over to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, what you'll notice there is that we're told that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Those two verses we tend to tie together, and, and, and we get this understanding that to some degree, Saul had some level of authority at this moment where he, he, was, uh, he, he didn't have to participate because he's the one who gave approval or something like that. No, no matter what the, the understanding must be of them laying their garments at the feet of Saul, the one thing that is for certain is that Saul was good with stoning Stephen. He approved of it. He backed it. He supported it. And then if you look in Acts chapter 8, we, we learn that from the day of Stephen's execution, we now enter into a phase of the church that's facing constant persecution. From that day arose uh, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. You skip down to verse 3, and you find out that Saul is a great contributor to this persecution. He's ravaging the church. Just think about the terminology that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use to describe Paul's activity, ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then if you skip over to Acts chapter 9, that's where you find out that he gets permission from the high priest to travel to another town, to the town of Damascus, and he's got paperwork that gives him the authorization 
to enter synagogues and arrest, for lack of better terminology, or to, to bind anyone he finds that's a Christian, a part of the way, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And then if you skip several chapters ahead to Acts chapter 22, as Paul is retelling his own story, Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, we're told that during this phase of his life, he persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. If you go to Acts chapter 26, we're told he describes his activities a little bit more. In Acts chapter 26, verse 10 and 11, he refers to himself as locking up many of the saints in prison, punishing them often, trying to make them blaspheme, and casting his vote against them when they were put to death. These are all the descriptions of what Paul did before he became a Christian. And in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, he admitted to persecuting the church violently and trying his words about himself. He says he was trying to destroy it. That's our description of what Saul was doing before he became a Christian. And those are pretty intense words to describe himself. Those are, those are, are, are pretty um, heinous acts from a spiritual perspective, particularly from a Christian perspective. And yet that's what this guy is guilty of. So when you, when you think about Paul, we tend to think about him as the, I mean, we, we focus on his post-conversion life. I think it's important for us to keep in mind how horrible he was before he became a Christian because it makes you appreciate the power of Christ to change our lives, the, the power of conversion. And, and Paul is going to forever refer to himself as the chief of sinners all because of this. So as we, as we move along tonight, we wanted you to be aware first of Paul's background and now of Paul the persecutor. And guys, what does this bring to mind as you reflect on the description of Saul's activities, including his own descriptions, what stands out to you? Well, one thing, if I could kind of toe the line between ed his education and his persecution when he really goes all out, uh, something that I had really never put together was that comment back in Acts chapter 26. I know we're, we're all flipping all over the Bible tonight. What, what a great problem. Acts 26, verses 4 through 5, how he portrays himself to Agrippa. Paul is a pretty popular guy. He wasn't just an upcoming Pharisee. He wasn't, like, he wasn't just one that he had a great heritage. He really made some great accomplishments. People knew who Saul was. This was a common almost household name, at least around Jerusalem. Look what he says in Acts 26, verses uh, 4 through 5. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation in Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So it's, it's just interesting to me to, to, to think about Paul as a a promising up-and-coming Pharisee. He's someone who was, he was advancing well beyond his age. He would also write in Galatians 1.14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. So he was the cream of the crop. 
Not only was he a Pharisee, not only did he have great education, he have a great heritage, but he was a fast track to be the next leader. So I think that's why in Acts chapter 7, verse 8, or chapter 8, when uh, Stephen's about to get stoned, of course Paul's the guy they're handing the coats to. He's the next promising leader. And the religion, the Phariseeism back then in the first place, they, they really, it was almost like what, what was the new fad of interpreting the law? Especially, you know, so the Sadducees are holding fast to the written law, but the Pharisees bringing in this, this oral law. And so they're, they're really adept at interpreting this oral law and the traditions of man. So, so maybe Paul was one that was translating and interpreting new ways or whatever it may be. He was gaining favor in Jerusalem as a promising Pharisee. And then for him to have this flip, which I guess we can't get to quite yet. But I think that's what gives context to his, his ravaging of the church. He was zealous for working of the Lord. He had a great heart. He, he, he thought he was so convinced or so, and so convicted of, that what he was doing was right, that he was willing to go to Damascus. He's willing to go out of his way. He's going above and beyond what everybody else around him is doing to protect and to, to preserve his faith. Because we've got to put ourselves in, in, in uh, Saul's shoes. What if one of our own here tonight, what if one of the members here at Buford came up with this new faith that said, okay, Jesus was great, but there's something better. This, this way of life that you've grown up with, that your, your grandfather grew up with, you know, you can look back at your family tree that you're used to, um, that was great, but that was really just a shadow of things to come. This is a new and better way of life. And they, and they led some people away. You think we'd be upset about that? You think we'd go out of our way to, to, to bring them back or to try to wake them up? That's what Paul is seeing as this new sect of Christians, this new group of Christians is growing, is this is just a perverted way of the faith that he, is, that he has grown up with, that he is proud of, that he is growing in. So of course he persecutes the church. He, he's a Jew of Jews, right? He's the Pharisees of Pharisees here. So I admire his heart here, and I think an application we can take from that, and I think we've all heard this before, is... God saw that in him. He said, "Wow, I can imagine God looking at Paul or look at Saul, looking at Saul and saying, "Look at the passion this man has. He's going in the wrong direction, but look at the passion, the, the motor that this man is, is working with here." And I have to challenge myself in my life at times to look at people like that. My family members, friends, people I see, you know, in the grocery store, people that maybe I'm driving next to it at a red light, whatever it may be. When I see something that maybe they're not doing right, let's take something as simple as being stubborn, right? We've all maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one here that has a family member that's stubborn. I don't know. Um, Can I ask who you're referring to? Absolutely. It's, it's, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, I think sometimes I see that as a character flaw where they're just stubborn. They're not, they're not, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to give in. And think about, okay, but how could that be changed? How could this character, how, how could this aspect of their character, this almost down to their identity, how could that, if, if they were only a Christian, how strong of a Christian that would make them, how strong they would stand for God if they took this passion for this aspect or this longing. You know, we, maybe we have people in our lives that are attached to certain substances who, who depend on certain lows or highs to get them through this week. Well, imagine if they could transition from that dependency to dependency on the family member here or dependency uh, on the blessings of God and transition 
that, that aspect of their life now to how it could be in, Christian, in their Christian walk. So I, I, see, I see Saul as someone who is overly zealous, extremely passionate. And Saul said, that's exact, God said, that's exactly the man I want. Because if I can get him moving in the right direction, that's going to help him. So I wonder what people in our lives, so I wonder which ways in my own life, a slight nudge or a 180, which character, which character aspects might be a flaw in one way, could be a strength in, uh, in the other way. And, you know, a great thing that you're kind of alluding to there is God's ability to see the best in us, sure. uh, even when we're in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, seeing, he's seeing in Saul the potential that he has and not just the errors that he's making. I, I find that fascinating that God can see even the best in us when, when we're not giving him our best. Mingyu? I think uh, uh, to have a passion is not necessarily good. You know, to have a passion for the right thing is good. Good point. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so, uh, but you know, I I was really um, uh, I'm interested, it was very interesting when I read uh, Acts chapter 26 verse 9 it says, I myself, Paul is saying, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he was convinced to persecute the church, to persecute the Christians, even killing them and you know, uh, putting them in prison. So he was really had some passion to oppose the church, to oppose the truth. And so he was so blind. So I, I uh, looked up some uh, Bible verses that uh, Brother Ben prepared, and I found this thing. Uh, what made him persecute the church? I mean, this is the question that I wrote down, and to, I mean, I answered it. The first thing is his pride. He, he, he was so proud of himself that he was a perfect law keeper. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6 says, I am blameless in terms of the law. So it, he was like the rich young ruler who approached Jesus one day and, you know, uh, what, can I, what should I do to inherit the eternal life? Then Jesus said, you have to keep the all law. And I kept all law, he said. Right? So he was like the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. And he was so jealous. I mean, Paul was so jealous for not the right thing, but the traditions of his forefathers. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14 says, he was so jealous for the traditions of, of the fathers, of my fathers, he said. And another thing that we already talked about he was looking at the false glory, not the glory of God, but the glory that was by the law, which, uh, was, uh, which was not possible. And there are two other things, like uh, Jay mentioned. He was, a, he was very proud of being a Pharisee. He said he was a strict, strictest party. Uh, one of the strictest party, Pharisee. He was a very strict Pharisee. And, you know, 
in our term, it's a denominationalism, Parisism. Pharisaism. Pharisaism is a denominationalism. It's not universal belief, universal uh, godliness, but it is a denominationalism. So he was, he was kind of a fanatic in a denominationalism, and it drove him to that kind of crazy persecution uh, of Jesus and his disciples, and also. I mean, the, finally, the, the last thing we can, I mean, he didn't say that I was arrogant in any, any scriptures here, but we can read that he was arrogant. I mean, he, was, he was bragging about his education. He was bragging about the, uh, the, the bodily or bloody, a uh, blood heredity or the, you know, uh, ethnicity, things like that. So he was arrogant. So these things made him blind to what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. He was so proud of himself. He was so proud of his party. And he was so proud of his, you know, uh, heredity. So he even persecuted the truth. And he, he even persecuted the Lord, Lord of Lords, and King of Kings. So. I think we need to be very careful about, our, about ourselves too in this regard. You know, as we think we have something uh, uh, that we are proud of, we can be blind by that proud thing. You know, if we are so proud of our achievement in our lives, then we can be blind by that. If we are so proud of our children, then it can blind us. So we have to be very careful about ourselves, especially as we think uh, we have something that I am so proud of. So probably there is nothing that is so safe for us to be proud of in our lives, for all lives, except Jesus Christ except our obedience to him, except our knowledge of God. And, you know, that's ultimately the message that Paul was giving in Philippians chapter 3 when he gave his resume in verse uh, 5 and 6. He was, he was talking about all the great things he had done or all the characteristics that he was proud of. But then he transitions and says, but I count all things as loss for the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. He came to the realization that you're talking about that I don't need to boast in these things. I need to boast only in my relationship with Christ. So wonderful, wonderful point, Mingu. You know, when I look here at, at Paul's life, particularly as he defines his heritage and as, as we read about his acts of persecution, the thing that really stands out to me is the fact that we all have baggage. Uh, you can't deny that Paul had baggage. Uh, this is the guy, as I mentioned earlier, that would refer to himself as the chief of sinners because of the things he did. But we, we all have something that we're going to have to give up in order to follow Christ. For, for Paul, that might be the, um, the, the, the uh, confidence he has in his flesh, the confidence he has in his education, the confidence he, he has in his family, the confidence he has in his, his intelligence, the confidence he has in his misplaced zeal, and maybe even 
the guilt that he has for what he used to do. But regardless of what it is, every one of us has some, something that would constitute baggage that we're going to have to, to, to give up. I want you to notice uh, Hebrews chapter 12 with me. The first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12, and though the author of Hebrews is disputed, it's interesting because the, the terminology is somewhat reminiscent of some of the athletic terminology that Paul would use in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this instruction is given. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The, the passage calls on us to lay aside. That's give something up terminology. Lay aside uh, that terminology specifies that, that we've got to give something away. We've got to let go of something. Um, and in context, it refers to uh, the fact that we've got to give up every sin. We've got to lay aside every weight or encumbrance or anything that hinders, depending on the translation that you're reading. One modern translation says, let's throw off any extra baggage and get rid of the sin that trips us up. And the author of Hebrews here is utilizing this running metaphor and referring to anything that is burdensome, anything that, that is a heavy load, anything that can weigh us down and therefore slow us down. And uh, I find that fascinating terminology. When we look at Paul, it's easy for us to pinpoint, okay, Paul, you've got to give this up, this up, this up, this up. Is it easy to notice in your own life what it is you're going to have to give up to uh, finish the race like Paul did? Can you right now, in this moment, can you identify in your life what it is that you're clinging to that's hindering your successful run? Because in order for Paul to go from darkness to light, there were things he was going to have to give up in order for us to, get to, to make the same transition, ultimately. There's something we're going to have to give up. And it's not always easy. I'm sure we'll expound more on that topic when we get to next week's lesson, which will focus on Paul's conversion specifically. But right now, as we're, as we're familiar with his education and the things he boasted in, and we're familiar with the sinful activity in which he engaged, namely persecution, it's easy for us to say, hey, look at what he was going to have to give up. Am, am I willing to do that as well? Am I, am I willing to... Uh, take stock of the things that are wrong in my life that are withholding my, or that are interfering, I should say, with my zeal being in the right place. Mingu, you made a great point that, that our, our passion can be misplaced, and misplaced passion is, is wrong. Passion in the right place is what it's all about, and it's got to be set on Christ. For me, when I look at the, the, the material we're studying tonight, that's what really stands out as a lesson for us to learn. And uh, what else do y'all want to point out tonight as we study the life of Paul? I would like to make a connection with what uh, Kyle preached this morning. You know, he said, uh, loving one another, the commandment, is the index, the only index, if the church is right, 
and the you know the Christian is uh, living correctly according to the uh, word of God. So love is the thing that we have to check. You know, we may have many passions uh, for many things, but if our passion lacks love, it's wrong. If our passion for the church lacks love uh, for our brothers and sisters, it's wrong. If our passion for the Word of God lacks love for our brothers and sisters, it's wrong. For our neighbors, it's wrong. So, uh, that's, that's the thing that Paul lacked before conversion. He, he said he was a perfect law keeper, but Jesus would have said to him that one thing lacked. One thing lacks in you. Love. Right? So uh, I think that's why Paul was blind, even though he was so enthusiastic, because he didn't have love for brothers and sisters and his neighbors genuinely but he was so proud of himself he loved something wrong but uh, so if he had love for people genuinely as the law teaches you know the law whole law teaches that you know we have to love one another I mean, that would not that he i mean i think then he would not be so wrong Hey, man, I want to go back to something you said earlier, Mingyu, about um, the blind spot that, that Saul had here, really. I think that's interesting to think about because um, Saul was blinded well before his, his, his trip to Damascus, right? We're seeing, that's what we're looking at tonight. He was blinded by his heritage and accomplishments, the law of the Pharisees, and what he thought was the truth. He was blinded by that to where he was walking and persecuting the way, as he would call it, the church. He was persecuting it blindly. So well before a physical ailment ever hit him and took away his sight for a few days, he was already spiritually blind to what was going on around him. It reminds me that we actually just talked about this in the youth group. Uh, Samson's the same way. Well before his eyes were removed, well before his, his sight was removed, he was blind to what was going on around him, right? We know the story of Samson and Delilah, and you know, she continues to ask, and, you know, Samson, how could you not put this together? And so we see almost as if he was blind to what was going on around him, a very spiritual aspect of blindness or, or a a social aspect of blindness there, and both of their accounts led to a physical blindness. But it all, all it leads to is they had a blind spot, and that's what you were touching on earlier, and I think that's really important to note. And you pointed out a few, you know, we all have a blind spot. When I started driving a school bus, and we're learning the, the layout of the bus, they, the first thing I teach you is, one, here are your mirrors, and two, these are your blind spots. Um, the bus has over, I think the bus I drove had 11 mirrors on it. And we still had massive blind spots. In cars that you probably drove here tonight or that are sitting in your garage right now, there's blind spots. You can have the best mirrors around, but when you're driving, there's always that one area you just can't see very well. We all, we're all aware of that. And we all have that in our lives, whether I think some that Mingyu mentioned, whether it be our family, whether it be our bank account, if we go to our screen time on our phone, how much time we spend there, we all have things that if anybody outside looking in, you go, how could you not see that is wrong? It's just like when someone merges over on you, right? You go, that's a lunatic. What is this madman doing coming over? But then when you merge over on somebody, you're like, oh, I just didn't mean it. I'm sorry, you know, uh, my bad. Uh, that's what, we, that's what we, a blind spot is. You can see someone else's blind spot because, well, you had the full vantage point. But in your own life, you go, well, 
I don't know about that. I can overlook this. Or you may not even be aware of it. So I think that's important to note in, in Saul's life here. The other thing is, this cost him dearly. His blind spot not only cost him a few days of not being able to see in that traumatic you know, aspect of his life, but look back to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, uh, Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I'm sure you've heard this before. I wonder how many people Saul scared in his ravaging of the church. I wonder how many people he pulled out of the homes that he then came face to face with just a year later or a decade later as he's going on his missionary journey. And this is the, the scattering of some... This is really the second time the Christians are scattered here. He's having to deal with this guilt the rest of his life. He's having to see faces that maybe he put their parents in prison. Maybe this child he tore out of their bed and put in prison that day. Maybe some of the ones he was on the way to reach in Damascus, now he's, he's preaching to. And that's a guilt that I'm sure never left him. Blind spots, they may not hurt us right now. But in a generation from now, ten years from now, a month from now, a blind spot you have tonight may come back to hurt you. Just like it, may, it happens that way in my life as well. Um, and then, I'm just making comments on you guys. Y'all are killing it tonight. Good job. Um, <laughs> Kyle, one, one thing you said, and I think, we're all, I think we all want to touch on this, is this aspect, this idea, I should say, that you can be sincerely wrong. You can be as genuine, as thought-felt, as passionate as one, as, you th as one can be, and can still be wrong about something. That's how important the truth is. That's how, when we walk out of here tonight, we're going to see, we're going to drive down this road, we're going to see congregations that are smaller than us, we're going to see congregations that are bigger than us, and we're going to encounter those people in Walmart, we're going to see the tags, we're going to see the stickers on the back of their car, and they're going to be great, they're going to be great people. That's also how some people among us, how we all have to deal with this at times, that we have to think about, just because I'm passionate about it, just because... I'm going to someone, maybe they've hurt me, they've offended me, and I'm passionate about doing this. Or maybe we've, That's how important the truth is. Just being passionate about something doesn't check the box. Just being zealous and excited about something and having a good heart and good intentions, sometimes that's, that's not good enough. That's just how important the truth is. So I've got one other thing, but um, I'll stop. Okay, original, original thing here, okay. <laughs> You know, there's a story goes that the daughter of this family, she any time she cooks a ham, she cuts off the ends, right? Maybe, maybe. Oh, I've heard this one. This is a good. I don't think I've told it, but oh, I've heard good. it. Oh, good! I'll steal it from you. Um, Wait, I was going to use it next week. Hold ah, on. Ah, my bad. So the, the the daughter of the family, she's newly, she's married, she's cooking a ham for the first time, and right before she puts it in the oven, she cuts off both ends of the, the ham. The husband goes, "Why? Some good ham. Why aren't you cutting the ends off? And he goes, oh, you have to do that. My mom always did that. You always cut the, ham, the ends of the ham off. And he's like, okay. Well, that Thanksgiving, the, mom, you know, the daughter goes to the mom. So, you know, hey, so-and-so, my, my husband asked me, why, 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 do, why do we cut the ends off? And, and the mom goes, you don't have to cut the ends off. I just don't have a big enough pan to, to hold the full ham. Traditions. 
Paul is led to this to spot in his life because of the traditions that he thought was right. And sometimes traditions don't have to be wrong to be harmful, right? There are traditions here that you're used to. The order of worship, the, the things that are said, the way that we do... Traditions aren't necessarily a right or wrong thing, but a tradition doesn't have to be wrong to mean that maybe you're missing out on the full aspect of it. Was it wrong for that, in that silly situation for her to cut the ends of the ham off? No, it's not wrong, but it meant they were missing out on some aspects of it. In our lives today, if we're following blindly traditions, they may not even be wrong. The traditions that you're following may not even be wrong altogether, right? But if you're just following it because it's what you're used to, or if I'm just following it because well, that's, what com- that's what's comfortable to me, that's what my Nana taught me, even if it's right, if I'm not following it for the right reason, then I'm really missing out. And I'm not enjoying the full blessing that that is. And we take part of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. That's not a tradition. That's something we find evidence for in the Scripture. But can that become a tradition in our minds? And the way we take it and where our minds go and the time in between the prayers, can that become something that... It's still right that we're doing it, but because of our mindset, while we're doing it, it can become wrong. I think that's something important to point out um, in Paul's life here. May I? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Jay brought up the you know, word the blind side, and every one of us has some blind side. But, you know, my blind side... Would not be, may not be blinded, I'm a blind side of my brother. So my brother will see my blind side. And I can, I may be uh, able to see his blind side or her blind side. So that's why we need each other. But that's, you know, that's why we need here, I mean, to be here in the church. That's why we. Uh, that's why I think uh, our Lord and, you know, God gave us the church to help each other to overcome the blind sides. I was there last, last year. You know, I was so blind. I, I, I was so passionate in doing Korean ministry, but I was making a, a mistake. But elders found it, and they approached me so kindly and so gently and helped me to see it. That was my blind side. And I was, I really appreciated our brothers and sisters and, and the church because I, without them, I could have, I could not have overcome that blind side. So brothers and sisters, let's appreciate each other. And let's, let's be open to each other so that we can be better every day. One final thought to piggyback off of what Mingu is saying. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, you have that passage that Jesus says, you know, uh, judge not lest you be judged, and talks about the speck in your brother's eye and the beam in your own eye. The one thing Jesus never said in that statement is that we're incapable of spotting specks. Jesus leaves open the fact that we are capable of spotting specks. We're capable of seeing each other's blind sides. And, 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 and I think the point of that is this, that we exist as a family to help each other see what we can't see. And the problem Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 7 wasn't so much the fact that we can spot each other's specks, but that we need to deal with our beams before we go calling out each other's specks. 
but we still have a responsibility to one another to help each other see what we can't see for ourselves. So with that, let's draw our time of study to a close. Uh, I hope you enjoy this new roundtable study on the life of Paul. Tonight we talked about the arena of his life that we classify as the persecution. Next week we're going to turn our attention to his conversion, and we hope you'll join us again for that study and for the rest of this series as it continues through May 2nd. Will you go to God with me in a word of prayer as we close out? Heavenly Father, we're honored to approach you tonight and to study your word. We thank you for giving us the life of Paul and allowing us to be able to see how someone who did such horrendous things was able to become one of your mightiest warriors. Lord, help us to learn from Paul's life and, and, and help, us, help us to reflect and imitate him the way that he imitated Christ. May everything we do be about giving you the glory. May everything we do be about honoring you. May everything we do be done in love for you and for others. Lord, we, we pray that we will walk in the light. We pray that we will see clearly, and we pray that we will shine brightly for those in this world. We love you, Lord, and it is through your Son's name that we pray. Amen.